From Studio One at the worldwide headquarters of ESPN and from Studio HD in Atlanta, Georgia, this is Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and on Sirius XM Channel 80. Over the course of the last several games, we've gotten used to a particular Jason Tatum. One that starts slow, erupts late, and every game we say, what's the ceiling look like? How good could this be? But in a game seven, where the Celtics needed everything they could get from him, they got it all, and it led to a blowout win. It's Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Harry Douglas, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. And Jason Tatum wasn't good. He wasn't great. He was incredible. 51 points, the most in Game 7 history, in route to a 112-88 thumping of the 76ers. A 112-88 game that, frankly, the the Celtics took their foot off the gas late. Otherwise, it could have been even, even bigger. The Celtics absolutely went in and decimated. Part of the key of that, part of the key was a 33-10 third quarter that absolutely turned this thing into a runaway. But the big key for them on the court was Jason Tatum doing incredible things. This is what Tatum had to say about his mindset, Harry, as he went into Game 7. Coming off last game, you know, obviously finished strong, but not starting off, you know, the way I wanted. And especially with our season being on the line last game, I was just excited. We had another opportunity today um, as a team and, you know, for myself just to kind of bounce back. I mean, I was relieved. I was happy about that just to get another, you know, chance because, you know, our season could have been over. And, you know, just being in another game seven, being able to come back home in front of our fans, um, I was really excited just for the moment. Ooh, appreciative of the moment. Having a game seven, because like he mentioned, they could have went home in game six. But having the mindset that he didn't want to waste that opportunity uh, to the point to where he outscored the Philadelphia 76ers, 16-13 in the fourth quarter of Game 6. He outscored the Philadelphia 76ers 17-10 by himself in the third quarter of Game 7. When Jason Tatum scored his first basket, I think they said that was his first field goal fits in the, I think, first quarter or first half since like Game 3 or 4 or something. And I was like, oh my goodness, I think it was Game 3. But when they needed him the most in game six, he was there. When they needed him the most in game seven, he elevated to another level in which we seen him do a year ago and scored 51 points, hitting six threes. But his scoring was so balanced, right? In transition, in the paint, at the free throw line, mid-range game, shooting the three ball. But he was in his zone. But he, and he also didn't want to let his teammates down. And he felt like in those previous games, he didn't show up for an entire game. And he didn't want that to happen in the game seven. And it showed instantly when he was out there on the court. I mean, 11 points in the first, 14 in the second. And as you mentioned, outscoring the Sixers just by himself, 17-10 in the third. When we talked earlier about what was missing from Joel Embiid, like what was never missing was Tatum. From the outset... He had whatever that thing is, that it factor that that just it, it made you you realized that you were like we're watching somebody that's coming out with determination of the gods right in this moment. It yep. just felt like rise above. And what was interesting was it felt like the Celtics read that in a really smart way that just kept finding creative ways. And again, I don't want to turn this into a Sixers conversation. We'll do that in a second. But like the Sixers couldn't find creative ways to get their guys the ball. The the Celtics did that throughout, and the number of just 
really high screens that he was able to come around and just find an open look on. I, I just, it was an impressive moment of sheer determination and an impressive moment of focus shooting from everywhere, and all of it felt right from Tatum. That's what made it so special. It was the Game 7. It was the control. It was the dominance. It was at home. It was this rivalry. All of that together. I feel like we see Jason Tatum differently today than we did 48 hours ago because what we watched. Oh, 100% though, Fitz, but it's also in... We don't want to keep taking it back to Sixers, but you have to link it to them because that's what happened when you're not able to close out. That's what happens when in a game six, you know, the fourth quarter isn't up to your team's capabilities, especially individual players. You open the door for a guy like Jason Tatum to have 16 points in that fourth and take over that game. But also what he did in that fourth quarter carry over to a game seven and his mindset goes to another level because he is a fan of the late great Kobe Bryant, right? And I'm pretty sure that's in his mind. Like, you know, what would Kobe do in this instance? What, was his, what would his mindset be? But he's also Jason Tatum to the point to where he's saying to himself, I don't want to let my team down. I don't want to let my mama down on Mother's Day because I know she's in the stands watching me on this glorious day. And he rose to the occasion. And I also want to say, so did his running mate in Jalen Brown because he was phenomenal in the third quarter as well. He scored 25 points in that game, Fitz. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Boston Celtics are favorites to win the NBA Finals because you have two guys, one in Jason Tatum who can hit you with a 50-piece at the blink of an eye, but also Jason Tatum, uh, Jalen Brown who can score 25, who can score 30, who can score 40 at the blink of an eye as well. You have two prolific bona fide scores that can get you a bucket if this team just locks in defensively, and we got to give Joe Mazzulla a little credit too, though, because he was able to start those bigs, right? Al Horford, also um, Robert Williams, and that made a difference as well. This team seemed to, you know, play a little differently with those two guys in the starting lineup the last two games. But Jason Tatum, when, when this team needed him the most, he was there. He was Batman. Not only was Tatum there with 51 points on 17 of 28 shooting, on 6 of 10 from 3, on 11 of 14 from free throws. I'm giving you those numbers because it speaks to efficiency. On a game where he had one foul, and on on a night where, also remember, he out-rebounded everybody else. I don't just mean the Celtics. He out-rebounded everybody. So your leading score was also your re- leading, I'm going to run down every ball I have to possibly, while also playing efficiently, while also not getting himself in foul trouble. Like That just speaks to a different level of focus and mindset. We're going to bring in a different level of focus and mindset now with ESPN NBA senior writer Andre Snellings joining us. Uh, Dre's going to hang out with us in studio. We're going to break down all this NBA action. Uh, you've just heard us, my friend, talking so much about the Celtics. Your first thoughts on Jason Tatum after what you saw yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. He looked like he'd been there before. Like So that was one of the big takeaways for me is last season when they got to the finals, he was outstanding till they got there. But then in the finals, to me, it seemed like the moment might have been a little bit bigger than he was ready for when he faced the Warriors and, and Curry and Andrew Wiggins. And he, he, it looked like he wasn't quite as comfortable. What I saw at the end of Game 6 and the start of Game 7 was – as he put it in his own words, I'm humbly one of the best basketball players in the world, <laughs> and it's time that I show it to you. And and so I think that showing that on the big stage, setting the all-time scoring record for a Game 7, uh, just weeks after Curry had just done it, was his way of, of kind of announcing to the world, we're not planning on going anywhere this season. And so I, I think that can change the way that people look at him because it's changed the way that he looks at himself. 
And, Jay, I would even say this, man. When you have a guy after that game six say what he said, you know, mm-hmm. he's humbly, uh, humbly uh, one of the best players in the world. I love that mindset because now your teammates are hearing that as well, and they're saying going into a game seven, we got that man. We got that man that just outscored the Philadelphia 76ers in the, in, in the fourth quarter, right? Mm-hmm. So he goes in with a different mindset, the mindset of I'm going to break all hell. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give the Philadelphia 76ers hell today, and I'm going I'm, I'm to try to force Joel Embiid to be better than me. And in the game in which he wasn't, the, the, the Celtics are moving on and the Sixers are not. I, I love the way you just said that, though, because like that's what – I keep trying to put my finger on what I'm looking for in a game seven, right? Mm-hmm. Like just as a fan watching, what are you looking for? And as much as we, we joke on this show all the time, his goat, Harry's goat is Michael Jordan. And my goat is probably LeBron. I, we're not big <laughs> on the goat <laughs> argument. But, like, here's what, what we do know. In those key moments, man, guys have a different feel. It has a different, like, there's just something different that you're There's a star power. There's an energy. There's a I, I got to have it moment. There's so much of that that we saw from Tatum, and we didn't necessarily see from the other side. There was just a there from the minute the Celtics started this game, it felt to me like Tatum was like, "I am going to win this game for this team." Yeah, I don't know if you remember the last time I was here, we talked about the LeBron game, like because LeBron had just hit some threes for the first time yep. in a while, and but the Lakers lost. And we said, well, was that the LeBron game? Did they waste it? And I said, that was not a LeBron game because I've seen a LeBron game. Mm. What Tatum just turned in was his version of a LeBron game. It was, you know, I'm here. I'm I'm a cyborg. I'm going to make every shot. I'm going to make every play. And my teammates, you can jump on my back because I'm going to try to carry you. So I think that was monstrous for him. I also don't want to skate past what Harry said about Joe Mazzulla. He had so many question marks, and he was being compared so unfavorably to Ime Udoka, who got them to the finals last season, that I think it was monstrous for him to get through that Game 7. Um, again, we're not going to Philadelphia. That'll be the next conversation. But he made the adjustments. He started Time Lord and, and Horford together. He knew how to um, take the different aspects of how Boston could win and give them the chance to do that. Make the 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 76ers try to concentrate on, well, how do we counteract this Robert Williams thing? And oh, by the way, they're looking over here, and Jason Tatum's like, hi, I, I'm, I'm good at basketball. You know, so <laughs> it, it, it just, I, I felt like from top to bottom, this was a huge win for the Celtics organization. It, it absolutely was a massive win, but there is another side to it. We've said we'll get to the 76ers. We will now get to the 76ers. Coming up, one of us is going to tell you why the Sixers are going home. Thanks to coaching malpractice. We'll tell you about it next. Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Fitz and Harry, the podcast. Score at TD Garden, the Boston Celtics 112 and the Philadelphia 76ers 88. Are you planning to be the coach of the team next year? Yeah. Yeah, I got I think I got two years left. So as far as you know, my coach, I thought he's done a fantastic job. He came in. We've I think got him better over the years. Uh, I thought he's done a great job. 
It's Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Harry Douglas, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. And while there's a ton of credit to give to the Boston Celtics, today, of all days, 76ers fans are sitting here looking at their radios as we're talking to you right now saying, what the hell just happened? We're going to try and figure that out. Actually, today we're sort of, right now, we're Fitz and Harry and, and, and Dr. Dre. And, and like, I'm all, I, you know, look, I, I'm just saying, Dre Snellings, Andre Snellings, ESPN NBA senior writer joining us, but you are both a professor and a doctor. Therefore, I can call you Dr. Dre, which means I can say I am friends with Dr. Dre. Depending on how things go, we might see if we smoke the chronic with Dr. I'm just saying. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming at some point. I knew it. I mean, I'm just a billion dollars short of the other Dr. Dre. So, you know, that's a small difference. I just, in case you haven't seen it, Snoop Dogg's playing Xfinity Amphitheater later this summer in Hartford. I feel like I'll just tell him I'm friends with Dr. Dre. I mean, might get a weird look backstage when you and I walk in. It's fine. All right. So, a lot of conversation about what went wrong but the question becomes without trying to get into this hot take yell at a, like where do we put the blame for what happened with the 76ers because ultimately seven games are not for however many years in a row this was not the outcome they hoped for so Dre who shares the, who takes the blame for this yeah I mean there's always enough blame to go around um I personally Yesterday during the game in the second quarter when the 76ers were winning by, I think, eight points, I tweeted out, I looked, and James Harden was one for five from the field and 0 for two from three-point range. And I tweeted out, like, hey, this is a huge red flag because James Harden is playing the I'm going to lose game. Um, In this series, coming into that game, in the three games that the 76ers had won, Harden was shooting like 60% from the field and 50% from three. In the three games they had lost, he was shooting 20% from the field and 10% from three. And so yesterday, if I'm pretty sure if you look at it, he ended up around 20-something percent from the field, and he might have made one three-pointer. So I think that some of the blame has to go to him because he's an MVP-caliber player that's still in his prime. It might be the tail end of his prime, but he showed this series he's capable of playing at that level for extended periods of time. And so the fact that he didn't have to average 45, but if he could just be normal, you know, if he could have gave them 18 and 11 consistently, like he did in the regular season, then this 76ers team, they need that. They they have a hierarchy, Embiid, Harden, you know, the, the younger players, uh, Maxie, he played well, Tobias Harris did his thing, Harden did not. So I think we have to at least start with him on the court as as someone that has to shoulder some of this blame. And and I'll say this, Dre, because people may laugh like when you say you just need James Harden to be normal, and I'll tell him to stop laughing because that's all you needed from him yesterday. What you didn't need from him yesterday is nine points, three for 11 from the field, one for five from the three-point line. Now, you mentioned that second quarter. Also in that second quarter when they were up eight points at the 826 mark, and I understand games go on run and teams go on runs, but they were up eight. James Harden gets that flagrant one. Mm-hmm. So now you have Jalen Brown who hits two free throws and then the alley hoop to Robert Williams. It's a four-point game. And the game just, I thought, was kind of lost from that point on. Mm-hmm. But James Harden didn't help his case by not showing up. And in the four losses, I mentioned this earlier, Dre, the four losses that, that the Sixers had, Harden was 12 for 55, 3 for 24 from three. 
How in the hell are you supposed to win if your second best player has those numbers and in, in, in losses? And it's a reason why they're losses. Yeah. I, I mean, as much as we have joked about my goat versus your goat, think about how often we've seen the other guy on any of these championship caliber teams, whether that other guy was the Scottie Pippen or whether that other guy was whichever, the Kobe or the Shaq you want to take from the other guy. Like, the other guy has to show up. This is the other guy being wildly invisible. But what I don't, and, and I'm, I'm going to give these numbers out again. And I'm going to give it saying this. Sometimes stats are just stats and you need context. But sometimes it's both. Doc Rivers is 17-33 and 33 in his head coaching career in series clinching games. That's the second worst win percentage in NBA history. He's lost 10 game sevens, twice as many as any other head coach in NBA history. The 76ers led this series 3-2. Doc has lost seven playoff series when his team is up 3-2. No other head coach in NBA history has lost more than two. There are a bunch of whys, but man, I still can't help the body of evidence. It's the, I feel like I'm watching one of those true crime shows where you're like, I don't think he did it, but man, I just saw four hours worth of evidence. I think he might have done it. Like, Trey, it's, like, it just hits me a little hard when you see the numbers. Yeah, no, I feel that. And, and see, and this is hard for me because I personally like Doc Rivers' persona. You know, I've never met the man, but I like what he seems to stand for as a person. And he was the coach of a, one of my favorite championship teams, the 2008 Celtics. I loved that playoff run. So it's hard for me to say that. But there were a lot of instances just in game seven where I was watching and I had to ask questions like, okay, why isn't someone being run at James, at, um, at Jason Tatum before he got to 50 points? You know, why, why are we still – switching on the pick and roll, letting Tatum go off on Maxi, who can't stop him? Why aren't we trapping and saying, okay, we know there are other scorers on the Celtics, but they're going to have to prove it because this man got the eye of the tiger today and I'm not going to lose to him scoring 50. Why, on the other end, we talk about Embiid and, and even Harden, why was the offense kind of so rudimentary? You know, why was it so much throw it into Embiid? He's getting posted up 17 feet from the rim and he's turning and, and trying to like dribble into the whole Celtics d defense to score. Why aren't we switching this up a little bit? Why, why aren't we being more creative? We have other scorers out there. So those are the type of things that even before you get to the long history, you're like, well, Doc, I need answers for this. I, I need to know why this went down the way that it did. And then when you bring up the history of it's happened before, yeah, it gets to be a, a more difficult conversation. Now, I, I will say this because there's always room for improvement. And does Doc need to be better? Yes. But also, Dre, in, in those game sevens and, and, or times that you can close out a series, I think your stars and your superstar players need to show up too. Absolutely. Because Joel Embiid, why are you catching the ball there? Like, mm -hmm. at times, I don't feel like you need a coach to tell you every single thing on a basketball court, right? Mm -hmm. And I just didn't think – I thought the Celtics did a brilliant job. It's another thing I got to give Joe Mazzula credit for – they started trapping Joel Embiid, and it, it, it seemed like he was discombobulated because he did have the ball so far away from the basket, mm -hmm. right? And I, I never thought the 76ers adjusted to it. So now Joel Embiid seems disengaged, and he's walking up the court and doesn't have the energy that I feel like a superstar player, especially one that just won the MVP trophy, should have had in the Game 7. Uh, and real quick, I'll say two things about that. One, Harry – 
I don't know a lot of superstars that in a game seven like that eventually wouldn't say, screw what coach says. I'm taking the ball. I'm taking this moment. This will be mine. I will live and die by my talents. I think we were all waiting for that moment. But the other side of this is, I'll be really honest. I will talk out of both sides of my mouth. I genuinely believe that if Doc Rivers is let go today, people will understand that. Mm-hmm. If he is, turns around and he is hired by any other team, people will view that as a quality hire. Like, mm-hmm. both things are going to be true because I don't yeah. think any of us really know what the hell to do with what is right now the, the current and the legacy of Doc Rivers. Because there's no doubt he's a Hall of Fame caliber head coach. There's also no doubt that these things have continually raised their heads. So, we'll keep breaking it down. Also, does one fan base need to consider trading their emerging superstar, not only for his future, but for the future of the entire NBA. We'll figure it out next. Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Fitz and Harry, the podcast. Jason and Harry hot on. So hot. So hot. And what are they cool on? It's in or out. Are you in or out? On Fitz and Harry. All right. The concept is a simple one. It's Fitz, Harry, and Dre for this hour uh, as Andre Snelling joins us. Has a good ring to it. Fitz and Harry, Harry Douglas, Jason Fitz. We're going to bring in producer Evan here. Evan Wilner going to come in. And producer Evan is going to give us topic he's going to give us a statement and then gentlemen we will decide if we are in or out on that statement everybody ready everybody feeling good evan are you ready for this level of pressure i mean we've got a professor dr dre with us which <laughs> I, I mean requires a slight different level of professionalism we'll see yeah. how it goes okay all right there we go all right evan evan has found his little step stool he's up to the mic and he is ready to give it to us what do you got for america all right let's hey, start yo <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that drop was coming in. All right, let's start with our guest, Andre. In or out, the Grizzlies should trade John ja Morant. Ooh. Ooh. I am out because I think that he's a young man that has enough talent and ability to get another opportunity, but I do think that he needs to be disciplined because he has to make smarter decisions and he's not making them right now. And my wife has been the one to say, hey, maybe he needs to, to take a, a foot in the you-know-where so that next time he'll, he'll uh, think before he rocks out the NBA young boy. Which, which is why I'm actually uh, – first, let me acknowledge, if I was Jaws' age and had Jaws' bank account – I would not have made good decisions at that period of my life. I think that's just an important point of context. We all think we know what we do with $250 million. I'd blow it all and I'd end up in rehab. Let's be real. When I was in my early 20s, I would not have handled it well. That being said, I think a trade would actually make some sense simply because as an organization, you're going to have to do one or two things. You're going to have to figure out how to change his social circle, which is very difficult to do. Or you're going to have to change every voice in the room that doesn't have the power to help change his social circle. If they have talked to him and it has not resonated, then the Grizzlies need to look at within and say, how do we change the voices he's hearing so he understands that it has consequence? And if you can't do that, maybe it's actually best for the human being as well as the basketball player to, to force a fresh start somewhere. I, I know it sounds asinine. I'm not. I don't think it's realistic that it happens. I just don't think it would be the worst for Ja Harry. 
For me, I'm going to go out. Um, I think it's too early for the Memphis Grizzlies to do that. We all know outside of the off the, uh, off the court issues, the talent that John Moran is. Mm, now yeah. you throw into those off the court issues. Um, I just think he has to get to a point to where he matures and he understands what's on the line. And it's also going to affect his basketball team. Now I do believe like he should be disciplined. I don't know what that discipline is, but I think it's too early to just say, you know, we need to go ahead and trade John Morant. The Celtics have the best odds at plus 105 to win the NBA title at Caesar Sportsbook. So, in or out on the Celtics being the best team left in the playoffs, Andre? Whew. I am out on it because I think there are currently three teams at the same level. I have the Celtics, the Nuggets, and the Lakers all within a scintilla of each other. With all due respect to, to Jimmy Butler and, and the Heat, I think that the Lakers, if if Anthony Davis and, and LeBron James are healthy, uh, can look anybody in the eye, including the Celtics. And with what Nikola Jokic is doing, I, I can't put any other team above them. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I think I'm I'm with you. I think I'm out on it, and mostly because I just keep, sit here and say, what else does Denver have to do? Mm-hmm. Like, what else? What are we waiting for Denver to do to prove to everybody, other than like be interesting and they're not going to do that? What are we waiting for Denver to do? So I, I think Denver's being slept on a little bit in this conversation. I'll give them uh, the tip of the hat at this point, Harry. I'm in on this. Okay. I'm in on this because the Boston Celtics are the deepest team left in the playoffs. They've also have that experience in being there, along with the Los Angeles Lakers and LeBron James, um, as, as well as Anthony Davis. But seeing how Al Horford was playing defense on the MVP award winner, Joel Embiid, and then also Joe Mazzula going to the Robert Williams and Al Horford starting lineup, on top of a Jason Tatum that can give you a 50-piece at any time, along with a Jalen Brown that can give you a 30 or 40-piece at any given time. Let's not forget they also have the sixth man of the year in Malcolm Brogdon. So when you look in totality overall what they have, and I didn't even mention Marcus Smart, who was a 2021 Defensive Player of the Year for the Boston Celtics, right? So I'm going to go I'm gonna go with the Boston Celtics in this one. Yeah, okay. All right. All right, in or out. I'm on. in on it. In, uh, in or out, Anthony Davis will get the best of Nikola Jokic in the conference finals. In or out? I'm out on that because I feel like Nikola Jokic is on a This Is Your Life tour. Like, a couple <laughs> right? Because, That's amazing. You know, um, th- we have the same Final Four that we had in 2020 in the bubble. And the Lakers had to go through the Nuggets to get to the championship. And Anthony Davis squashed Nikola Jokic. And then a year later, the Phoenix Suns squashed the Nuggets with DeAndre Ayton playing really well against Nikola Jokic. Well, we saw how that turned out last round. I don't think Jokic is going to do to Davis what he did to DeAndre Ayton, but I think Jokic isn't the same old guy. And I think that him and and, and Davis hopefully really have a battle between two elite players, but I definitely don't think it's going to be a pushover. Yeah, I. so here's the only thing I'd say. I love this nugget from Stats and Info as they were previewing the series. During the regular season, Denver allowed opponents to shoot 69% at the rim. Nice. The third highest rate allowed in the NBA, even with Jokic. Mm-hmm. They were they were just, they were abused at the rim. I kind of feel like AD is still going to feast, but mm-hmm. what, what do we define as get the best of? Because I still look at Jokic's passing and say, okay, everybody want to collapse on Jokic, all he's going to do is just feed all of his teammates. So 
I think they're both going to eat. I'm out on. I'm. Oh, I'm. I'm. I'm in on AD having a hell of a series. I'm, I'm in on AD having a hell. Well, of a all right. series. All right. So, 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 Dre. Here's the funny thing. Um, I'm glad you brought up Anthony Davis getting the best of Jokic back in 2019, 2020, and then the Lakers went on to win that championship. I don't think Jokic forgot about that. I really don't. Um, a guy who has a sense of pride to himself. Uh, individually and both as a basketball team. Plus, he understands the narrative that he's won back-to-back MVPs and hasn't, you know, even been to a, a, a NBA champion, uh, NBA Finals. Uh, period. Still, with all that said, I'm gonna go with Anthony Davis because the athleticism jumps out on the table to me, and I think he's way more athletic than Jokic. Might not be as skillful, but he's way more athletic than Jokic. So I'm gonna I'm go. I'm gonna go in on this one. All right, guys, in or out on going to or purchasing tickets to Beyonce's Renaissance Store, Andre? I'm out because I can't afford it <laughs> unless, uh, you know, uh, ESPN wants to give me quite a raise. Um, uh, my, my, if I have to uh, mortgage my house for Beyonce tickets, I'm getting divorced. <laughs> uh, you're right about, like, I don't know how anybody affords it anymore. Like, I, I was out there last week. I was late to our production meeting one day trying to get tickets to Aerosmith's final tour, like their, their retirement mm-hmm. tour. I've never seen them live. I always wanted to. I was like, you know what? I'm going to splurge on myself. I do okay in life. I'm going to get myself floor seats to an Aerosmith concert somewhere. Cheapest I could find was eight hundred bucks face value. Yeah. Eight hundred bucks a seat. Yeah. Eight hundred bucks a Woo. seat for that's for Aerosmith. <laughs> Beyonce gonna be like mortgage like at a zero. Per, yeah. I mean, I, I can't My even. Goodness. By the way, Beyonce is gonna put on a show. We our creative director for all of our live performances that we did on TV is Beyonce's creative director and has been for years. I've never seen anybody work the way Frank works, and like I understand why her shows are epic, worth every penny. It's just too rich for my blood. Hey, Harry, the real question is, are you in and out on taking me and Dre to see uh, Beyonce? Well, right. here's the thing. I'm already money. going to the Beyonce show, me and my wife, and what? you know, by the grace Poor of God friend. and these wonderful relationships I've built over the years, um, I don't have to pay, purchase them and pay for them. So, you know, God is good. See, he, he's going to always show up. He might not be when I want him to, but he's going to always be on time. That's the Lord, that is. Okay, so... Two questions. Number one, if you can get two, can't you get four? four? Right. Let's go. That's easy multiplication. And by the way, I, I mean. Well, you know, people, you know, like to come on shows and tell me what I can and can't do and what tickets I can't get. But we're not going to mention anybody mm-hmm. today. That's for Michael another time. Collins. We're going to bring those, the, those people back up some, at some other time. I'm not going to lie, Harry. One of the uh, one of the arenas that Aerosmith is playing is down in Atlanta. And I was like, yeah, worst case scenario, I'm going to hit up HD and be like, hey, I need some floor seats to this. Not sweet. Like you sit is, in the is suite. It, is it is it at State Farm Arena? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, okay, so just just let me know. It's not going to be floor, but it's going to be a nice little suite. Okay, you kick I mean, your that, feet that, up I mean, and that's... all you can eat that whole nine. Oh I'm man, I'm, I'm going to stay at the Palace de Douglas. That's what uh, <laughs> that's what's <laughs> happening. Fitz and Harry presented by Progressive Insurance. Round out your protection with life, phone, and pet health insurance, which is my daily reminder to say hi, Annabelle. I love you. All right. Speaking of Renaissance tours, will the Warriors give us one next year? We'll break it down next. Fitz and Harry with Ray on ESPN Radio and Sirius XM Channel Eighty. Fitz and Harry, the podcast. Vincenzo gets it blocked by Davis at the cup. One second to go in the half. Reeves the heat from half. It's good! The streamers fly as the Lakers, the seventh seed, will face Denver for the Western Conference title. 
It's unbelievable, man. I, I thank God every day. We've gotten past two really phenomenal teams. This recent one being world champions four times over. I'm really, really having a ball coaching this team and representing this organization. The Warriors season is done. Now the question is, what's next? Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Andre Snelling's joining us in studio. A lot of conversation about if this means the dynasty is dead. Less than a year removed from an NBA championship. Is it time to dismantle it all? Fitz and Harry, Harry Douglas, Jason Fitz. Uh, a lot of, for all the talk we're going to have, part of this comes back to the future of Warriors GM Bob Myers. That's been a big part of the conversation. Before we start our conversation, I want you to hear what our very own Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN senior NBA insider, had to say on NBA Countdown about Myers' future. Last night, that he plans to take a couple of weeks to make a decision about his future running the Golden State Warriors. And it's a decision that he said he is torn about, I think in large part because of his relationships, he said, with the core uh, three of, of Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and Klay Thompson, and his coach, Steve Kerr. Four championships under Bob Myers, and an organization where he just carries a tremendous amount of weight, respect. You heard all the key players their coach talk about how badly they want Bob Myers back. He's not there yet on a decision. And, and I'll say, Fitz, he, he's earned that right to take his time to make this decision, but he is Bob Myers that is very pivotal in what the Golden State Warriors have been able to do. Um, I, I'm just wondering some of the things like going through his mind, like the Jordan Poole feeling some type of way, the Draymond Green in the punch, you know, Steph Curry have, having to – you know, give a speech before a certain game versus the Sacramento Kings. I wonder if the, if those are things that will kind of, you know, cloud his mind a little bit. You trade away James Wiseman, and rightfully so, because you need a Gary Payton a second, but you get beat up inside because you don't have, you know, that presence of a guy that can be an offensive threat, you know, and also take it to the perimeter and shoot the three and shoot the mid-range game as well. And they what they took James Wiseman with the second pick or third pick? Second. Um, second. The second overall draft pick. Ahead of LaMelo Ball. Yep. And for, and for him to be traded that fast, um, I think says a lot about both sides, right? I think it says a lot about James Wiseman and his ability to grow within that system, but also – it shows that maybe they shouldn't have taken him there and should have probably went with somebody else. And, and we say that once it's all said and done, but that's the reality of it as well. Yeah, so kind of piggybacking on that, I think that it's less likely that we've seen the last of the Steph, Dre, and Clay as it is that we might have seen the last of Jordan Poole in a Warriors uniform. Good I point. feel like that Wiseman trade was the first step in – saying that the kind of dual timeline they were trying to work on of we're going to win right now and we're going to build for the future at the same time. I think Wiseman being traded was the tip of the domino or the first domino of, yeah, maybe that's not going to work. Um, I don't think that Dre, he's in, he's got a player option for roughly $30 million. I don't think he could get that from anyone else. And I don't think that he has the value to any other team that he has to the Warriors. Um, and... Steph and Clay, I think, are both still going to be there. Clay is owed like $43 million for this year, too. But we saw Dre and Jordan Poole fighting to start the season. We saw Jordan Poole go away 
after he missed that three and got the backlash to end the season. Um, we saw Jonathan Kaminga completely fall out of the rotation after playing pretty well this season and rumors where he wasn't happy about that. I could see the youth movement going away and being traded or funneled towards veterans to help their veterans, but I think the veterans are still there to stay. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said, and it makes a lot of sense. I, we're the, the legacy of Bob Myers, the GM, is not to be questioned. We all understand that. However, the Wiseman draft is now we can look at it and say, huh, hey, was that the right pick? Also, Jordan Poole getting a ton of money Ooh, is now it. very questionable. So mm-hmm. some of this they've sort of done to themselves. The hard part about it is I think what you're trying to accomplish, and it makes sense, you've got older guys, you've got younger guys. You want not only the, the older guys to help the younger guys win, you want to also be able to impart your culture, how you do things. Not only from the punch – but also from the the speech that Harry alluded to from the Sacramento series. What that says to me is that the younger guys never got the message. Like, they there never bought go. it. So now you, you either need different younger guys, or you're going to have to find a way to get that message through. Because whatever the, the, the three are doing is not resonating with the young crew that was supposed to bridge the gap for him, Harry. Well, Fitz, I, I would say this, and that's the part for me that's mind-boggling, because when you had a formula, uh, the Golden State Warriors, that is, that you know brought you four NBA championships, sometimes uh, it, it's sad that the young guys get to a point to where they're so selfish to the point to where they don't understand the formula and understand it's, it's, it's a work-your-way-up type of mentality. But also, you have to perform at a high level on the basketball court. Like the rumblings of Jonathan Kaminga being upset that, you know, he's not getting enough playing time. Well, go out there and show that you deserve it. And then Jordan Poole getting upset. Well, you're an offensive guy. And if you're not hitting shots on the offensive end, you're a liability on defense. And you don't make the best decisions when it comes to playmaking. And then you shoot wild shots. It's like their reality. They're not being real with themselves at the same time. And that kind of hurt the Golden State Warriors, I think, this season. Yeah, but we all agree that Clay, Steph, and Draymond are going to be back next year. I don't see any way that they're not, right? Yeah, they're, they're there. It, if agree. anything, maybe next year is the, the, the last ride for them. Like the swans over for But also, let's remember, as I said earlier, we're less than a year on the calendar removed from an NBA championship. So given the way mm-hmm. the West has played out this year and the unpredictability of the NBA playoffs overall, it's hard to say that any of this is going to be we, – we have no idea what these changes could mean for everybody trying to figure out how to separate going into next year. Trey, thanks for hanging out with us all hour. We appreciate you as always, yes, my sir. friend. All right, we're going to keep some expertise coming. we got tons to break down in the NBA playoffs, but it's also football time. We'll get you caught up on some NFL news next. Fitz and Harry. Fitz and Harry, the podcast.